Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, May the 8th, 2020. This is two, episode 2656, 2656 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, since it's a Friday, we have an expert counsel show because it is, I haven't done it in a while, how about it? Friday, 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 the monster show of the week. Uh, I've got a good lineup for you today. Leading off the expert counsel, I think we're going to make this official. Tim Toolman Cook has a question he takes for you guys on troubleshooting a light. And I'm going to describe it as a light that kind of has gremlins in it. Uh, then we have Doc Bones with an update on Rendezivir as a treatment for COVID. Darby Simpson will talk to you about getting started selling production from your farmstead, kind of continuing in that thought. How about expanding a CSA, if you already have one, through uh, establishing a small coffee roasting business? Who else would we have talked to you about that other than a Nicole Awesome Sauce? Uh, Sean Mills with a question on power for an off-grid cabin with generators now, solar later. I actually have some thoughts on this, but I'm going to let the engineer speak first, and maybe he'll have my thoughts maybe he won't i just have a few things that i immediately was like oh well uh, uh, uh. but sean is the expert on that subject so we'll hear from him first and i will listen to it as you do um well not exactly because there is a delay because it's not live it's memorex uh paul wheaton then will give us an update on progress from paul wheaton's place up in the wilds of montana some pretty cool stuff going on and then uh i've been forecasting an end to the current education model well it's at hand And I, I'm saying COVID continues to kill the dying. And Como made a statement that the people were like, oh, my God, I can't believe Como would say that. And I'm not a fan, but I'm not surprised. Because Como said something six years ago that showed what he really thinks about the current education model. It's a place where we agree, we may not agree completely on exactly what you do to fix it, but we agree. I agree with Como, Andrew Como, on the fact that, well, the current government school system is what you would refer to as a public monopoly. Because that sounds like something your typical leftist northeastern Democrat would say. It doesn't, but Como said it in 2016, actually 2014, six years ago. So COVID continues to kill the dying. It'll all make sense when we cover that in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and uh, start out with a quote of the day today. And I think this is one of those quotes that like is so spot on. And so much an example of what I teach, but it's still not always true. There are times to fight. But there are much more often the best thing to do is not to fight, but to learn to use and design within a system. Buckminster Fuller knew something about that. And he summed it up with you know, a very short five-word sentence. One comma, one period, and five words. Really six, I guess, because one of them is a contraction. Don't fight forces. Use them. Now, I want you to think about how well that melds with some of the advice that I've given you over the years, such as, uh, quoting Jeff Lawton, the more restrictions placed on a design, the more eloquent the design, if the designer is up to his task. And how we apply that not just to permaculture, but lifestyle design. Or how about this, <clears throat> Jack Spierko, 90% of the tax code tells you how to get out of the 10% of the tax code that tells you what you have to pay. When you look at that great big tax code, 10% of it 
A huge, huge tax code. All this shit in it. Let, and I, you know, I'm doing that to simplify because it's really not even 10%. The part that says what you have to pay is less than 10%. The rest of it is all the different ways that you get out of paying it. And the more you focus on that and use the system, the better off you are instead of fighting the system. It's not compliance to use the system. It's compliance to obey a system. See, I believe in not just bending and breaking rules. I believe in, in, in literally raping rules. Just raping rules. But see, the difference between breaking a rule and raping a rule to me is when I, when I break a rule, I subject myself if it's a legal rule. Right? So I'm all about breaking rules that are psychological rules, that are society's rules. Like, you have to do this or you have to do that. When, you, when there's no law that actually makes you do it, you can break that rule. Other rules we either bend or we rape. So when we look at something like a tax code, if I actually break the rules of the tax code, there's these guys that are called auditors. And sooner or later, you can come up against one of them. And they have no sense of humor whatsoever. And their only job is to prove that you owe them money. And they're actually judged on how much money they extract from people that they audit. And they're very good at what they do because it is the only thing that they do. And if I break the rules, well, <laughs> okay, if they, if they get me, they got me. And I'm going to get a bill for a lot more than I saved. If I rape the rules, what you get is, I see what you did there. I don't like it, but it actually complies You actually set this up to allow yourself to be able to do this, but that's how the system works. That's what I mean when I say rape the rules. And, 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 and that's what not fighting, but rather using the system is. Recently there was a discussion on Facebook. Ben Falk started it. He posted, you know, Ben and I agree on like 95% of things. But he is kind of of the whole, he, he's like, he wants to be an anarchist, but he just can't let himself be one. Right? Like, he, he, he wants to point out, hey, this person has a lot more money than everybody else. In this case, Jeff Bezos. So he posts this infographic that shows how much money the average person has, how much a millionaire has, and how much Jeff Bezos has. Of course, it's a massive amount of money. Well, I pointed out, number one, Jeff Bezos does not have that much money. He has a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. But Jeff Bezos does not have the amount of money that they say he has. Jeff Bezos holds an ass load of Amazon common stock. So much that if he were to sell 5% of it, he would literally crash his own net worth and crash the net worth of millions of people who hold Amazon stock either directly or in mutual funds, including your grandma who's on a fixed income that has, that has Amazon stock in her you know, 401k or retirement. So this idea that these billionaires have the money that we say that they have when they're holding the majority of their billions in common stock is, is a fundamental level of ignorance. I pointed that out. But the bigger thing I pointed out was You could take every penny Jeff Bezos has, distribute it evenly across the United States, and you could get every other billionaire and do the same thing. So there were no billionaires left. In fact, you could take anybody with a net worth over $100 million, take all of their money and say the maximum amount of money any millionaire or billionaire gets to keep in this redistribution scheme is a million dollars. Anybody with a million dollars or more, we take every penny over a million dollars that we have and we redistribute it. Not only will we destroy the economy, because again, to get that money, you have to liquidate the majority of Amazon stock and there'd be nobody to buy it. Okay? But if we did that, in five years or less, most people who are broke today would be broke again and most people who are rich today would be rich again. 
Additionally, Jeff Bezos having a gazillion dollars does not have any impact on your ability to be successful at all. And I even challenged Ben. There were some retards in that thread, too, that I just eventually gave up on because it doesn't matter. But I challenged Ben to give me one business by name who he can show me directly. It's not, it went out of business because Amazon. And he went on about all kinds of businesses that are hanging on barely, and it's all Amazon's fault. But he didn't give me a single business by name and said he could. And he knows he can't because he knows if he does, I'm going to look into that business And I'm going to point out all the things that that business could be doing to be thriving today instead of going out of business because Amazon. And that all these businesses, these local businesses and stuff, the Main Street businesses that blame Amazon today, they blamed Walmart yesterday. And they blamed True Value Hardware before that. Right? Like, this is just the evolution of how people buy and sell and trade goods. But further, that if you could give me a business and clearly demonstrate to me If it was not for Amazon, this business would still exist. It would still be in business. It would not be out of business. And we're talking small businesses here. I'm not talking Macy's, right? Um, if you can do that, for every one you can put in front of me, I will go find you 10 businesses that exist and thrive because of Amazon. Small American-owned businesses. Whether they be people that are affiliates like myself, whether they be people that resell through Amazon, people that sell their books through Amazon. And by the way, Ben, I think you sell your books on Amazon, right? So I'm not putting Ben down. I'm just pointing this out, right? You can either go, Amazon sucks and Jeff Bezos has too much money and everybody is, it's not fair. Or you can say, gee, if this is a trillion dollar a year marketplace that anybody can play in, how do I play in it? Instead of fighting that force, how do I use it? Even if you want to fight it, how do you use it? Be the anti-Amazon. Have some alternative to Amazon, at least for something. But this idea that we're going to fight what basically amounts to the forces of progress. The reason Amazon does so much business, and you can take the COVID surge aside, right? The reason Amazon does so much business is because I can go online, find what I want, and get it sent to me. If buying from the local store to get a Wilson basketball or a mechanical timer was so great, such a great experience, and I had to pay a dollar more for it, I'd go do it. People don't go to Amazon because it saves them money. People go to Amazon because it's convenient. People go to Amazon because those stores that you're so worried about are largely stocked with people who are incompetent and can't help you. And they've been that way for a long time. Back in the 1980s, when I was a kid, there was a hardware store called Center Supply in downtown Minersville. And I would go in that store, and my grandfather would be like, hey, I need some of these washers. Get on your bike, go down to Center Supply, get me some of these washers. And it's one of these old school, like it's not that wide, but it's super long, goes back forever, hardware store. And I'd go in, I'd see, I can't remember his name. It was uh, it's like Simmons, but it wasn't Simmons. Mr. Whatever the guy's name was, it owned a place. And there was a big Kodiak bear in the window, by the way, a Fred Bear shot, a mounted bear in, in this little store in Minersville. It was really cool. So I was always happy to go there. I'd go in, and I'd walk in, and he'd go, ah, young Jack. Come here. What's up? And I'd be like, hey, I need, um, sir, I need uh, uh, three of these. And I'd hold those, this washer out. I know where those are. And he'd just walk back and go to a drawer and pull a drawer out and boom. Never looked anything up, knew where it was. You know what? If it was still like that, people would still go to those places. People would still go to those places. But they don't because it's not. 
The reason that Uber and Lyft are putting taxis out of business is because they work better, not because they're cheaper. Because I can get an Uber or Lyft now, right now, at this bar where I ended up drinking too much and I need to get home. That's why. Because I can see the driver who's coming, I can watch him on a map, I can summon him with my phone. If taxis did that, they wouldn't have got hit so hard by Uber and Lyft. The reason Airbnb is pounding the, the, the hotel industry is because I can get a house for the price of a freaking hotel room. That's why. And because I can have choice from hundreds of options. There's so many examples of this. And this is not bad. This is good. You don't fight force. Not these kind of forces. You use it. On the other side, there's times where you have to fight. There's times where you have to fight. And wisdom is knowing the difference. And you can fight forces like Amazon. You can cry about forces like Amazon. You can do whatever you want there. And you know what you'll get? Square root of F all. Or you can say, I only want to spend my time and energy doing things that make my life better and the things that I care about better. Instead of whining that these people over here are not being given some of Jeff Bezos' money, go make some money and give them some of your own. That's charity. That's charity. Whining and crying and bitching and using force by proxy to steal from someone else to give to someone else, you should have the money way over there? That's cowardice. It's not just not charity, it's cowardice. At least the thief has the courage to face you when he steals from you and risk the consequences of doing it, like you killing him for trying to take your shit or beating his ass or something else happening to him because he did it. The people that are socialist-minded... Comp call themselves moralists, you are cowards. You are cowards because you want someone else to use force and violence to do that which you will not do yourself, and then you call yourself charitable. Sorry. Sorry. That's not even fighting a force. That's using force. You think you're fighting a force. No, you're using force on others who are peaceful. No one makes you shop on Amazon. No one makes you shop at Walmart. No one makes you shop at True Value, and no mo nobody makes you shop at Sam's Cafe. We all choose where we spend our money. If you don't like a business's practices, don't spend your money with them. And tell others why. But to call upon the use of force and violence to steal from that business, who clearly is doing something right, it shows that you don't have any understanding whatsoever of the system that you're working in, and you're a terrible designer. That's what it actually shows. With that, let's move on and let's go on to a question for Tim, Toolman Cook. Troubleshooting a light with gremlins in it. Hey guys, Tim the Toolman Cook back here from All Seasons Maintenance in East Central Alberta, Canada. Spending a beautiful day outdoors working with my beautiful wife, doing some yard work, getting some gardening done leveling a spot for an above-ground pool. So I am back here again to answer another question for the expert council. Uh, this week's question comes from Jason, and it says, Recently I had a ceiling light go out. Switched the bulbs, nothing. Thought it was perhaps one of the switches, particularly as one is an old push button. I removed the push button switch, cleaned it, repolished the contacts, tested it in with my multimeter, and showed that it was functioning nominally. Rewired it, still no luck. When I test the circuit of the wires for the ceiling fixture, it shows around 8 volts, regardless of the switch being on or off. Obviously, it should either be 110 volts or 0 volts. Why might this be happening? 
So before I go into this, I should probably offer a disclaimer. Uh, years ago, when I first started working at a hardware store, uh, when I was being trained and taught on all the different subjects in the store, my old boss said, if you give plumbing advice, the worst thing that's going to happen is the customer's going to have wet feet. But if you give the wrong electrical advice, the worst thing that's going to happen is the customer ends up dead. So, you know, use this information at your own risk. Contact a professional if by any means it's outside of your normal realm of comfortability and take it for what it is. Anyway, that's my disclaimer. So there could be a few issues going on here. Um, I've had this happen a couple of different times where, you know, tra trying to track down an electrical issue is a lot like trying to find a needle in a haystack. First off, I would check, I would definitely center in on the circuit from the switch to the light. Check every single connection, check all your screws, Check any morettes or wire nuts that may have come loose. Take them all apart and recheck all your connections there. Check on the ground as well, because it sounds like the ground may be either shorting out, arcing out, or not attached whatsoever, and it's allowing a little bit of power to leak back through. Quite a while ago, when I was um, digging a hole through a cement floor, looking to fix a sewer line, Every time I would touch the wire mesh that was in the um, cement floor, I would get a little tingle or a little buzz. And that was because there was an inadequate or a broken ground in the house that was shorting out into the uh, sewer line and touching the wire mesh. So that may be where you're getting a little bit of the bleed through with the power. Being an older house, check and see if you have aluminum wire. If you do, check all of your screwed connections extra close because it can look like it was really well done. Uh, aluminum heats up and shrinks and the screw can stay in place and it may not be quite touching. So it, there could be an issue there as well. One other time that I've ran into problems, uh, I had a circuit that worked everywhere up to the plug and the light that was coming off it. So if this light is being fed from a plug in a wall and everything else is working before it, you may have had uh, a little bit of an overblow where it may have blown the wire off, caused a disconnection. This could be a real pain in the butt to try to find, but just take your time, search through, and see where that break might be. So you may even have two separate issues here. If the switch seems to be working fine, but the light's not working, but you also have bleed through of the power, there may be trouble in the circuit leading up to the light, but you may also have a separate grounding issue. Uh, in some of the older houses, quite often, they were grounded to the plumbing, the copper lines. Those connections can get corroded, cause it to not function properly, and if everything isn't wired 100%, you can end up, again, having power bleed through even when things are turned off. So check your old clamp that may be on the copper pipe. See if there's any corrosion there. If it's loose, broken, trace the ground wire all the way back to see what may be causing that problem. Also, if you have an outdoor ground rod or grounding plate, check those out. Make sure they haven't been disturbed or the wire hasn't been broken. That could just be causing the bleed-through problem, and it could be separate. Uh, have you tested the light fixture itself as well to make sure that that's working? So test that out. Again, check all the connections. Be as thorough as you can. I know I've gone through and checked connections three times and thought they were good, and on the fourth time, finally found somewhere. Um, I'm sure you know, but look for any little black spots or, uh, you know, little burnt spots where something might be arcing or shorting out. That can be causing your problems. Um, you know, there can be a hundred different areas. These are just a few that come to mind when I'm dealing with electrical issues. And once again, if you get to the point where you're stumped 
or you're not comfortable or it's above or beyond what you normally want to handle, I just recommend calling in a professional. I'm a handyman. I like to do as much things um, that I can do myself, but I know my limits. And if I get to somewhere where it's something beyond what I can handle, I call in a professional as well. So sometimes it just happens. Um, you know, electricity, you know, it, it's easy enough to switch out a light or a plug or that sort of thing, but there can be problems with uh, bigger, bigger issues in electrical too. So if it comes down to it, call in a professional, get them to fix it so you have peace of mind. If you guys have any other questions, send them to Jack. I love answering them. Anything to do with tools, handyman, fixing things around the house, whatever it happens to be, drop Jack a line and give him the question and I'll answer it for you. If you want to check out our YouTube channel, it's uh, All Seasons Maintenance on YouTube. We just started a new series this week called Growing Your Successful Handyman Business. I believe it's going to be an ongoing series where we share any of the tips that I know that can help you be successful in business. Uh, you know, even just entrepreneurs can learn something from it. But, uh, you know, and also to, so you can learn from some of the mistakes I made so you don't have to make the same mistakes. And if you want to know a little more about what we do on a daily basis, check out our Facebook page at All Seasons Maintenance. It's just kind of a day-to-day -day look at what we do in a handyman business. And if you have any personal questions, something that, uh, you know, you might need some help with, that you just, you know, might need a little advice with your business, friend me on Facebook, send me a PM, and we can chat there too. So anyway, guys, thanks for giving me the time to talk to you. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll talk to you again. Take care. Bye. Yeah, I think we're going to keep him around, and I could use more questions for Tim. Remember, he's a handyman. Uh, he has knowledge on tools, um, you know, fixing stuff, organizing stuff. Uh, basic business questions I think would be good at that small solopreneur business level. Uh, there's just a, a myriad of things. Look out your backyard and think about the, or the, your front yard or your garage and think about the thing you're trying to figure out what to do with it. Get me a, quish, a question for Tim. Remember how to do that for Tim or anybody. TSPC expert in the subject line. Send it to me, Jack at the survival com. Ask your question in a single sentence with a question mark at the end of it. You can do it. I promise you. And then hit return and then give me the details. And if you do that, we'll get you an answer. And maybe we'll get you one from Tim Toolman Cook. With that, let's take another one. This one on Remdesivir uh, from Old Doc Bones. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 1,200 posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. Together with nurse practitioner Amy Alton, we're the authors of bestsellers like Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide, The Survival Medicine Handbook and Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, as well as designers of medical kits and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. Today I want to discuss the antiviral drug Remdesivir and its potential to treat COVID-19 disease. With the FDA approving Gilead's Remdesivir as an emergency use treatment for the most acute cases of COVID-19, many people are wondering what type of a drug it is. Remdesivir is indeed a member of one of the most important classes of drugs known as nucleoside analogs. First, obviously, I need to define some terms. A nucleoside is a compound found in DNA and RNA in many species, including viruses. An analog is a thing that's seen as comparable to another. So nucleoside analogs resemble naturally occurring compounds that are found in viral and even human genetic material. The reason nucleoside analogs are so effective in dealing with some medical issues doesn't focus on the similarities, though, so much as the slight differences between the drug and natural nucleosides. 
If an organism like a virus incorporates a nucleoside analog drug into its genetic material rather than the real thing, even small changes to the structure of these building blocks prevents the mechanism of viral replication from happening. That means no newborn virus is looking for new cells to invade. This is the case for remdesivir and COVID-19. Remdesivir works by blocking the coronavirus's RNA polymerase, which is one of the key compounds that SARS-CoV-2 needs to replicate its genetic material and expand and spread in our bodies. By the way, unlike humans, almost all viruses have either DNA or RNA, but not both. Remdesivir works when the enzyme replicating the genetic material for a new generation of viruses accidentally grabs this nucleoside analog instead rather than the natural molecule, and incorporates it into a growing RNA strand. Doing this essentially derails the viral train and blocks the rest of the RNA from being replicated and as a end result, the virus from multiplying. Remdesivir originally was found during a drug discovery program at Gilead Industries to search for inhibitors of the hepatitis C virus, that's another RNA virus, Although Gilead ultimately selected a different nucleoside analog drug for hepatitis, the company tested the drug to see if it was effective against other RNA viruses and indeed showed some medicinal benefit against Ebola and the coronavirus Middle East Respiratory Virus, MERS, or MERS, among others. According to the NIH, patients who received remdesivir had a faster recovery compared to those who received placebos. 11 days compared with 15 days for those that only receive sugar pills. That's four days less in the hospital. Results also suggested a survival benefit with a death rate of about 8% for the group receiving remdesivir versus close to 12% for the placebo group. While these results are preliminary, there are all sorts of clinical trials underway across the world. Infectious disease expert Dr. Anthony Fauci says the antiviral drug remdesivir is the first step in what they project will be better and better drugs coming along to treat COVID-19. But he still cautions that this is not the total answer. Still, that's more than what he was willing to say about hydroxyquinolone. This is the anti-malarial drug that is used in combination with zinc and the antibiotic azithromycin by Dr. Vladimir Zelenko and described by me and many others, actually, in a previous expert council discussion. That drug was described by Dr. Fauci as having only anecdotal, that is, personal recollection and opinion, as evidence for its effectiveness. It's been recently criticized as a treatment because of the risk of heart complications, which can occur, but it is still approved for compassionate use by the FDA. Of other studies that have been reported, so far one demonstrates that remdesivir works in sick COVID-19 patients, another one doesn't seem to show quite as big an effect. Remdesivir has potential to help in severe cases of COVID-19, but probably not by itself. A combination or cocktail of drugs will probably be needed to provide a more effective and more complete therapy that actually blocks the virus from replicating. This drug combo has yet to be developed. Studies seem to show, however, that there is no difference in benefit between 5-day treatments of remdesivir and 10-day treatments. That's good news because that means that all you may need is 5 days of drug and that essentially doubles the global supply which is relatively limited in quantity since it's only made by one company, that's Gilead. Though the federal government has cleared the antiviral drug Rendesivir to treat some COVID-19 patients, don't expect it to be given to everyone. 
The emergency use authorization granted Friday by the Food and Drug Administration allows the drug to be given to patients with COVID-19 only if they are severely ill. That means blood oxygen levels below 94% or otherwise needing supplemental oxygen to breathe. Supply of the drug is very limited and it's still experimental and is sort of a complex intravenous medication. For now, the federal government will decide who can get treated with the drug outside of the continuing research trials. According to Gilead themselves, given the severity of illness of patients appropriate for remdesivir treatment and the limited availability of drug supply, hospitals with ICUs and other hospitals the government deems most in need will receive priority in the distribution of the drug. So remdesivir, not a miracle drug, but it's better than a placebo, For remdesivir to be used more widely, it would need to meet the more rigorous standards required for permanent FDA approval. Many of these restrictions would then be lifted, and use may be more widespread. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, do yourself a favor and check out our entire line of medical kits and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. Don't forget the Members' Brigade gets a discount off anything at our store. Check it out. And our website, YouTube channel, and much, much more at doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So I, I just want to kind of reiterate what I said about Rendesivir myself yesterday in addition to, to Doc's comments. Rendesivir is a valid therapy. I find it's used to be completely appropriate. I find the studies that have been done on it to be well done and encouraging. And I find that The, the takeaway from those studies is, boy, we used it on a lot of people on ventilators, and it would have been better if we used it a little earlier. Okay, And I completely think that when you get a patient to the point where they are in the hospital, it makes sense. But the uptick from that all that, all that noise, it did not reduce the death rate. I'll say that again. It did not reduce the death rate. What it did is it reduced the recovery time for those who would recover by 35%. That is massively huge. You know what else does that, especially when you give it earlier? Hydroxychloroquine. And what I've seen is this big thing now of people blowing up on social media. And this is like I was talking about the, the feedback danger. When you lie, people don't trust you even when you tell the truth. Everything that I just told you about Rendezvere matches what Bowens told you and matches even what Tony Fauci, who I do not like, is saying. I believe it. But then the takeaway becomes, oh, they just want to sell you Rendesivir for $1,000 a vial instead of hydroxychloroquine for 50 cents a dose. I don't even think there's not truth to that, but it doesn't mean that Rendesivir isn't something that we should be using. It means we're using hydroxychloroquine often inappropriately, and then we're using Rendesivir when we could have prevented the need for it at all, but I don't think every place that we give a patient hydroxychloroquine it's going to work. I don't think that any drug works 100% of the time for everybody. For every, it just doesn't. You know, I mean, the, the, the drugs we know work for this thing, like that's the gold standard of treatment, don't always work for everybody. Some people can't tolerate them. But we need to be using both of them. Uh, but it is encouraging. And I think you will see more, um, more things coming down the pipe that assist not just with this coronavirus, but with many things. I think we are entering a golden age of advancement in medicine. Um, unfortunately, Uh, I think we're also entering an age where a lot of things are being done wrong and done for the wrong reasons as well at the same time. With that, let's go on to the next one. This one is on kind of ramping up sales from production from your farmstead. And Darby Simpson was very clear about this, a farmstead, not a homestead. 
Anyway, Darby, take it away. Hey there, everyone. Darby Simpson with Grassfed Life. Taking on another question that came in from a listener this week. And this one comes from Andrew. And Andrew is wanting to know where and how do you sell your homestead livestock? Uh, some details that Andrew sent in. Uh, he wants to know, do I sell my whole animals to a butcher? Is there an actual market I sell my animals to? Andrew's thinking about looking, uh, you know, just for some general answers uh, about how to go into selling livestock off of his homestead. And he's trying to research the process a little bit. He mentions he's interested in selling goats, pigs, ducks, chickens, and any other small farm animals. So... Uh, a couple of things here, Andrew, that I, I want to mention. The biggest one is if you are selling livestock, Andrew, I want you to listen to me really carefully, you no longer have a homestead. You now have a business. You have what is called a farmstead or a side hustle, a side gig. And you've got to run it like a business. You've got to treat it like a business. You've got to separate it out from your homestead and get really good data, keep really good records, and charge accordingly for your time. And I, this is something I get asked a lot. And, you know, I'm still a homesteader at heart. We have some things here that are homestead-esque, right, um, that I don't sell. So I don't really... I mean, I know what the expenses are by and large because of all the business we do with our farm and having been a full-time farmer for 10 years. But some things, like, I don't track. You know, like my egg-laying hens, I really don't care how much grain they eat so long as I get wholesome, nutritious eggs to eat. I'm not selling those. By the way, the reason I don't sell eggs is because it's really, really hard to make money on eggs, even at five or six dollars a dozen. Okay, um, so that's a homestead thing, and you can have as many homestead activities as you want, Andrew. Go nuts! Get all the goats, all the pigs, all the ducks, chickens, sheep, rabbits, you name it. I don't care. Go bonkers. But if you want to start selling, now I want to know which one of those animals isn't a homestead activity, which of those are a farmstead activity. And you don't want a whole bunch of enterprises. Each one of those is an enterprise. And, you know, at most, the, the most we've ever had here were four enterprises. That's the most. Now, have I done a couple of other things? Yeah, we've had you know six or seven things total, right? Uh, we've done some ducks. Uh, we've done eggs. We did sheep one year. But you know, by and large, beef, poultry, pork, right? I'm in Indiana. Those are the three main food groups. That's what I sell. Um, so I don't I don't want to discourage you from selling. Okay, because you're kind of talking to start, well, maybe I'm selling surplus, but if it's onesie-twosie, okay, but if it's, hey, I'm going to raise, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise 100 chickens for us to eat, so I might as well go ahead and do 200 and sell off the extra 100 meat birds, that's a business, and you got to treat it like a business, and you got to approach it like a business, and you got to put all the effort into it that is required of a business, uh, that might mean forming an LLC. 
That means setting up a separate business bank account or at least a separate DBA account, doing business as, um, where those funds are collected and treated differently. You're filling out a, uh, a 1099 Schedule F on your tax return. That, that's, that's a farm schedule, okay? Uh, you got to track all of your expenses, you know, uh, keep every, everything separate, track all the income, the whole nine yards. Now, where do we go about selling it? I have predominantly sold at farmer's markets. We have also sold in bulk, uh, meaning I sell a family, half pig, whole pig, quarter cow, half cow. Uh, maybe they, you know, back when we did poultry, they might buy, you know, 50, 60 whole chickens a year. They'd give me a deposit up front. They'd come and pick up 15 chickens every time we butchered uh, whatever. That's That was kind of our bulk program. And then direct by the cut to, to the consumer at the farmer's market. They might walk up and buy one pound of sausage or walk up and buy 20 pounds of protein total and anything in between. Um, we, we've never just, like, hauled animals off and sold them you know, to a butcher or to an animal market. I think you're, when you say animal market, I think you're talking about, do I haul these off and sell them at a livestock auction? No. You're going to lose your shirt. But you won't know that you're losing your shirt if you don't have all those expenses done on the front end uh, so that you can do a post-mortem after you sell it and determine how much money did I make? Or in this case, how much money did I lose? So you're out money and you're out your time, and you're, you're spending time doing that instead of spending time with your your family, your kids, working on your home or a different side hustle or whatever the case may be. You know, we've only got very limited, and the older I get, the more I realize this, very, very limited resources, right? Time, money, energy. And I'm at the point in my life where I think the three of those are equal. And I'm, I'm kind of getting to the point where energy is almost more valuable than time and money. And I'm not old, right? But I don't have as much energy as I did five years ago or ten years ago. So I say all that to say you want to be very, very careful about where you spend your time, money, and energy because they're limited resources. Um, and we, we certainly don't want to go into this and haul an animal off, you know, to a local butcher or, God forbid, to an animal auction where we don't know what we're going to get. We're, we're, we're basically doing commodity grains. Hey, I raised, you know, hundreds of thousands of bushels of, of corn or soybeans. I show up to the elevator and say, what are you going to pay me today? I mean, that, that's, that's what an animal auction is. You take a cow or a pig or something down there and say, what, what are you going to pay me for this today? Well, nobody showed up, bidding's low, you know, you got 60% of what you put into the, the animal back, right? Like that can happen. So direct market is the answer. That might be friends, family, neighbors, whatever. But again, you got to understand all the costs. That's where you really need to start doing your research is how many pounds of grain does it take to fatten up a pig? What are the associated processing costs? What kind of licenses do I need? Do I need to have an LLC? Do I need to join Farmer to Consumer Legal Defense Fund? So that when someone from the 
Department of Making Me Sad shows up and accuses me of doing something, I've got legal representation. Um, these are all real things that I have personally dealt with, uh, and it's just part of owning a business. So how do you go about finding customers? There's a number of ways to do that. Social media, creating an email list, Craigslist, showing up at a farmer's market. Um, if there's another farmer around you, maybe you've got a veg farmer that's got a robust customer list. Maybe you could say, hey, would you take a 10 or 15% commission to pre-sell chickens for me? You know, this, this is the price. This will be your cut. And then you know what your profit's going to be because, again, you've done all that research. You know that it takes 15 to 16 pounds of grain to fatten up a broiler. You know that it, it costs four or five or six dollars per chicken to have somebody butcher that for you and professionally vacuum seal it and put a state-inspected label on it so you can sell it legally. Um, you've got all those expenses figured out. Now we can approach, okay, well, you know, how do I start selling stuff? You know, these are some of the general things you need to look at. So the first thing you want to do, look at the state you're in, start there, find out what the laws are regarding how to sell animal proteins off of your farmstead. So, Andrew, I hope this has been helpful. I know there's a lot packed in this little 10-minute segment here. If you want to learn more, check us out at grassfedlife.co. We've got almost 150 podcast episodes out there that you can listen to. Everything you need to start selling beef, poultry, and pork profitably from your farm or farmstead. Until next time, thank you very much, everyone. Keep the questions coming. We love answering them here on the podcast. Take care. Good stuff there from uh, Darby Simpson. Next, I have a question that kind of fits right in with this. We've got somebody with a CSA who wants to maybe add coffee roasting to the things that they do. I might have some additions to this one, but we'll hear what Nicole has to say first. Well, hello, TSP. Nicole Sauce here from Holler Roast Coffee today. <laughs> I have a question in from John about coffee. And John says, what does it take to start a small coffee roasting business? Details. I have a market garden that I started four years ago, and I'm looking for ways to grow sales without scaling up vegetable production. I was thinking coffee would be a good complementary product that I could sell at markets or in my CSA boxes Plus, I like coffee more than I like vegetables. I tried selling coffee that I white-labeled from a large roaster not far from me, but it felt fake selling a product I didn't actually roast. Thanks for the show, John. Okay, John, we've gone back and forth a little bit. My first question was to John, do you know how to roast coffee? And his answer was he had not started yet. So here's my perspective on, on this question. Uh, I would do some more research on outsourcing options in your shoes because I imagine you're already fairly busy growing your vegetables for the CSA and roasting coffee and packaging it takes time. So unless underlying this question is that you've always wanted to be a coffee roaster and it's your passion, I, I would say, how can you ask yourself this? How can you tell your, a story about the coffee you're adding to your boxes that you want a private label that is a story you can stand behind? Um, you know, something about maybe how you source the beans, how you've blended this particular blend and it's John's blend. Find a story to tell that doesn't feel fake. And then, of course, don't lie and say that you didn't roast the coffee, right? Just say, yeah, I work with this awesome roaster. 
This is how we went back and forth. I tasted 25 different combinations until I dialed in John's roast or John's blend. And then these are the farms that the beans come from. And this is why you should support that because they grow their beans the way we do. That sort of thing. Like find a story to tell. That's what I would do. In fact, a good friend of mine ran a coffee shop, Chef Brett, in Nashville for a long time. And that's exactly what he did. He went to a coffee roaster he trusted sat down, dialed in exactly what he wanted at his coffee shop, and then that is the blend of coffee they served for the duration of that business, and people loved it, right? I mean, he's now opening a new restaurant in his where he lives now, and I guarantee you if he's serving coffee, I bet it is that blend. So a lot of times we tend to let the perfect get in the way of the good and make make things harder for ourselves, right? When we, when we go down a road like this, cause you're already growing vegetables. So, so that's just my opinion, you know, an opinion's worth what you want it to be. Now, if you're like, no, I have to roast the coffee. Underlying this is I think I might be passionate about coffee. Different story. I just don't want you to get into something that turns into a chore or work as part of pursuing your dream. So if that's the case, in order to launch a coffee business, what you need to do is learn to roast, find a market, sell to that market, and grow your business. I mean, it's kind of like any business you start. Now, to to learn to roast, it you might want to join the SCA, which is the Specialty Coffee Association. SCA.coffee is their website. They have a huge expo every year. Unfortunately, it was April this year. And so, of course, it did not happen. But you can just learn a lot about the ins and out of ounce of coffee by going to that website and signing up for their mailing list. I continue to learn tons. Uh, you know, like I don't, I'm not God's gift to coffee knowledge here. I learned tons from them and from other coffee roasters. And I feel like every year that I roast, things get dialed in a little bit better. So learning to roast coffee is a lifelong thing. Now, and the next thing is you need to figure out what you're going to roast the coffee with. And I did a demo at Jack's a while ago where I showed how to do it on a cast iron skillet. That's not what you want to be doing, though, for the market, right? So there are home scale coffee roasters like the, the um, what is it, something Genie Cafe, which is what I used to have. It's an air roasting machine, does half a pound at a time. When I was selling at coffee, mar- uh, selling at farmer's markets, I would bring it and roast at the market but because it only does half a pound at a time, you know, like that takes all day to do like five to 10 pounds. So it's not very high scale. So then you, you end up flipping over into either getting what's called a Baymar, B-E-H-M-O-R-E, which is a fire roasting machine with a rotisserie drum. It's a drum roaster. Those are great because you can learn the process of coffee and, um, and, and it's more of a hands-on sort of machine, where there's the Genie Cafe is a, uh, you said it and forget it sort of machine. Um, however, the flavor difference between air-roasted coffee and flame-roasted coffee is huge. You get more burnt on the flame. It's just, that's all there is to it. So those are two home-scale machines that people use to get started. I used one of those to get started. I can tell you this, though. When I went up to a commercial machine, the quality of my roasted product was exponentially better. So if what you're trying to do is go big, then I would suggest look into some of the uh, fluid air roasting options that do a pound or two at a time. There are several. The one I have is a Sono Fresco, and 
you um, you spend some time dialing in a roasting profile, and then my computer controls when the heat goes on and the heat goes off, right? And because of that, I'm able to get a pretty good roast, but it's set it and forget it. And sometimes when you set it and forget it, what happens is you end up with like what just happened to me now is I roasted a nice honey roasted bean for a medium roast order because I do custom roasted. Like when you order, then I roast it. I don't roast it in advance. And the machine lost its ability to think or something or it was too hot outside. I don't know. Anyway, I have two pounds of dark roasted honey processed beans right now that I can't sell. So, of course, I'm going to drink those. So that's what happens with set it and forget it. Uh, the alternative is to get a machine where you're manipulating the height of the flame throughout the roast, which equips you better to learn how the beans respond to temperature and gives you better skills. And you're more likely to have a consistent roast over time if you're doing that, but it takes more of your time. So there's trade-offs for anything. So that's the first thing is learn how to roast. I would apprentice to a roaster in your shoes if I'm trying to bone up quickly it took me probably eight years before I even got my commercial machine of learning and I'm still learning. And it's just sort of, I mean, like, it's like anything. The, the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. Okay, next you want to find quality green coffee beans. Coffee Bean Direct is one place to do that, but there are tons. They're more expensive, by the way, than some of the other ones. If you just Google green coffee beans, you'll start seeing sources for different beans and you can grab, you know, a 50-pound bag and start playing with that. Uh, what you want to do, though, is check your source and make sure they're really providing what they say they're providing, okay? Because you don't want to get into a situation where you've said this is a single source bean and it isn't really. But I have to tell you, I haven't found much corruption in, in my green bean sources. I just know what I'm looking for are single farm sources whenever possible, as close as possible to organic growing processes, I prefer direct farm purchases because the farmer gets more of the money if possible, although I will buy collectives uh, depending on the flavor of the bean. And then I, you know, I, it has to taste good. That's that's key. Okay, then packaging. Packaging is the next thing. What I found when I sold at the market is putting it in little paper bags while people will sell it or buy it. If I had a flashier looking package, it looked more premium. I could command a better price. And as you get into this, you're going to find out that green beans aren't cheap, especially if you're not buying tons of them at one time. So you're going to have to command a fairly decent price for your coffee. That means you need to be able to tell the story. And that goes back to choosing the right beans. But then you want your packaging to, to reflect that premium option. And then you'll also find your competitors are selling 12 ounce pounds bags. They're calling them bags now. They do 12 ounces, not 16. And so if you're going to do a full pound, which I still do at Hollow Roast Coffee, you have to be ready to communicate the difference because like my coffees, some of them are, you know, $25, $30 a pound, but you're getting a full pound. And then somebody will compare the same coffee to a 12 ounce bag and it's less. And then they think, okay, well, why? And they, they order the, the smaller ones. So you may decide I'll do 12 ounce bags just like everybody else. That's totally up to you. Um, a great book to get into is called Modulating the Flavor Profile of Coffee by Rob Hoos. You can order that online. You just have to Google it because it's not on Amazon. Um, but it's it's a roaster who has spent a lot of time in the Portland, Oregon area 
figuring out if I dial the roast this way or that way, what flavors do I pull out of beans? This has been, this book has been my best resource as I've learned. So check that one out. And then if you are really going to grow a coffee business, you need to aggressively market your product, tell the story beyond the markets and CSA boxes, and think about moving to an online model. Because once you have the product, once you have the process, what you're going to find out is it takes almost as much time to roast. For me, it takes almost as much time to roast 20 pounds as it does to roast 50 pounds in a day and ship them. And so what I'd rather do is have a 50-pound day go as fast as I can, get everything out, because then my per pound cost for my time goes down, right? So you want to be able to, what you don't want to do is two pounds a week. It's kind of a pain to do two pounds a week. What's better is being able to do like your full day of roasting or your full half day or however you arrange that. So look at marketing to the level you want to get to and consider consider doing shipping, because people are all about shipping these days in the COVID world. And um, a couple things to know about shipping is the medium flat uh, padded, oh, let's say it's the padded envelope, padded medium envelope. I don't know. A USPS, it's like $750 to ship. And you can put as much weight in there as possible. So like my two sweet spots are six pounds in the flat rate medium box and then two pounds in that padded envelope. In between there, what I have found is sometimes it's better to go flat rate and sometimes it's better to have my own box. For example, if I mail four pounds to Florida, it's a little bit less than the medium flat rate box. But if I mail those same four pounds to California from Tennessee, the flat rate medium box is better. So you, you have to start getting to know the different prices and packaging options. Of course, UPS now has a service that uses the United States Postal Office, but is then a little bit cheaper. So you might want to look into that. Um, and then that means you need to have all of those materials on hand. So I guess what I'm saying is it's kind of a big thing to add if you're going to add it and do do what it sounds like you want to do with it. But if your heart is in roasting coffee, then go for it. And I would say this, as you go down this road, track your time and decide, is it worth it? Do you love roasting and producing coffee? If so, consider how you're going to go beyond your CSA market and into other markets. And what I see most roasters doing is they open a coffee shop. I'm never going to open a coffee shop because while I like people, I don't like people every day. And I don't want to make people coffee. But most roasters do best who are also to serve, also able to serve coffee to people so they can taste their product. And that's a great tool to use, right? Except for right now when some of us aren't allowed to have coffee shops open. But you know what? Tennessee's opening up. Super excited about that. Anyway, I hope this helps you get started. I know you've already ordered some green beans, so you're already playing with it. If you have any questions, you have my email. Just reach out to me. And guys, I think my biggest point here is it's a great idea to find value adds on an existing business, but do it in a way that A, doesn't take a whole bunch of your time and B, doesn't make you grumpy. So if you're going to do something like this, you want to add something you love if you can and do it in a way that doesn't, you know, put you in a situation where you're working two full-time jobs and don't have time for your family because that's that's not what we're here to do, right? We're here to build the life we want to live, not not to overcommit ourselves in business, which can be really uncomfortable. Um, with that, I would like to mention my spring workshop was supposed to be about a week ago in Tennessee, 
And unfortunately, it had to be moved due to the COVID pandemic. So I am opening up five seats for my workshop today at livingfreeintennessee.com if you want to come. And the theme of the workshop is grow, grow yourself, grow your food and grow your independence. We're going to have John Pugliano has just committed to coming. He's going to go do a presentation from Marine to Millionaire. I've got presentations on how to grow food. I've got presentations on how to set your life strategic plan and move forward. We do project accelerators where you present your project to us and we give you feedback to try to help you get it off the ground faster. It's going to be a great event. June 11 through 13 cost is 450 includes a t-shirt and your food and camping on site. That's all over at Living Free in Tennessee. And of course, because I had to move it, we had a, a few people not able to come. So there are now Five seats available, although I just got a text message, so I'm lying. There are four seats available for the Living Free in Tennessee Spring Workshop. Hope you can be there. With that, go out and make it a great week. So my addition to this is going to be really simple, and it would apply to anything that you would add to a CSA. First is, I believe the people buying a CSA box want local. Now, coffee's never going to be local from the standpoint of it was grown here. And if it is, it's going to be very expensive. If you're going to make a way to grow coffee to enough scale to sell to even, let's say, 50 customers a month uh, in the United States, and you want to sell as locally grown United States coffee, you need to be selling that shit for like $60 a pound. And I, I'm not kidding. And there needs to be something really amazing. It needs like Jamaican blue bean or something. I don't know. Something about it has to be really great because it's going to take a lot of energy. So we, we throw that away. We, we can roast locally. So as Nicole was saying, like one way would be to get somebody who already is roasting locally and include their product. That is the easiest thing to do. No matter whether you do that or whether you buy beans, roast them, and package them yourself, there is a cost per eight ounces of coffee. And I think eight ounce, four ounce, something in that range would be a good adding to the box, You know, especially like a biweekly box. That's going to be enough to have a few cups, um, to really kind of get the person happy about it, but it still makes it special. Because the other thing I want out of CSA is I want it to be special. I don't want it to be what I can get at, at, at Kroger's, right, or Albertsons, or AMP, or whatever, right? I want it to be special. I want it to be something that I share with my friends who I'm like, wow, I get this from. So there's going to be a cost to make that bag. It's going to be labor and materials for you, or it's going to be labor and materials plus profit for somebody else. What I want to know as a person, because my product, because remember Darby just talked about not wanting to have too many enterprises, right? My enterprise is selling a box of stuff to locals on a weekly basis with some kind of routine repeat customer. That's my business model. This stuff is sold to these people. When I put that coffee in that box, what does it do to increase the perceived value and how much I can charge for that box and my profitability per box? If it does not make the profit per box go up, or I can keep it kind of the profit right where it is, but it makes the box so much more desirable that my customer retention goes up. If it doesn't do one of those two things, I don't care what it is, I don't want it in my box. I don't want it in my box. When I start looking at, if I were to put together a micro CSA here, and I've thought about it a lot, and it might be something I do going into the fall. I don't know yet. 
I'm getting a lot of research, a lot of, of, of information right now on, on what would work. One of the things I think is I would put a half dozen duck eggs in that box. The reason I would do that is, one, there is perceived value. Two, I'm producing them anyway. I would not, because Darby made a very astute comment about eggs. I sell duck eggs for $8 a dozen, and we make about $3 a dozen in profit. And we don't, we don't produce that many right now, but I sell them for $8 a dozen. When I have a customer that's like, well, I'll buy six dozen, first of all, do I have them for you? And second of all, they're $8 a dozen. But I'm going to buy six dozen, so that's $48. I don't move from that price. So that means that I have um, a, 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 a cost in those eggs, right? And then I have a profit on those eggs. If I cut... A 12 pack of eggs in half, 12 pack of eggs in half, and put you know half of a carton in a box. And you know, again, I make about three dollars a dozen, four dollars a dozen, depending on on exactly what I do. And I don't really track it because again, I don't sell them anymore. But let's say it's let's say that I make four dollars a dozen on eight dollar eggs. And that that's about where my numbers were when I was doing it commercially and running it like an enterprise. Okay. So let's say that's what I'm making now with just kind of the side business that my wife runs for cash for a few of our customers we kept. Unless that box is worth at least $4 more to my customer and makes me $4 more by putting that $4 profit in there, I ain't doing it. Because i got to charge $8 for those eggs to make the same money regardless of where they go. If they go to a person directly for money, I have to charge $8 to make four. If I put them in a CSA box, that has to represent $8 of the cost. See, it doesn't change because it went in a CSA box. It has to represent $8 of the cost. Now, here is the thing. If my target price on the box is 40 bucks and the eggs make it worth 40 bucks to the customer and my profit is where I want it in total. Let's say I want to make $15 a box for a $40 box. And I, I don't think I do. I think I want to make 20. I want to make 20. And when I put that $4, now remember, now it's a half a, half a carton, that $4 in eggs, sale cogs, cost of goods sold, in that box. If that box was probably worth to the customer like, and I know it sounds stupid, but customers judge a package differently than an individual item. If that customer would look at it and go, this may be worth like 30, 30 bucks, and they really mean 35, but in their head, if it's less than 35, they drop to 30. If it's more than 35, then it's 35. If it's like 38, then maybe it's really worth 39, 40. See, that's what people think. But if I can drop that six-pack of eggs in there, and all of a sudden that thing in their mind, it was somewhere in the low 30s, is worth 40. In their Again, it doesn't actually change the numbers of the things in the box. But to the customer, 40 bucks now feels good. I'm going to put it in the box. Because my customer retention, my repeat business, my referral business is all going to go up. And I'm going to think of that way about anything that goes in that box. And I'm going to, so what I want to do with a CSA is I absolutely want to do things that fill out the box for the least money and the least work with the highest perceived value. So one of the things that I could do then is custom blended teas. Be a great thing, way easier than roasting coffee. 
more in fitting with the mindset of the person that buys from a CSA. And now I can source my organic herbs from Frontier or whoever. I can blend my tea, which is mixing it. I can put them in little bitty jars that I have come back because I think the right way to do a CSA is as much reusable as possible. And every customer puts out a deposit that covers one set of all that shit. Okay? That's your, your Tupperware, your Rubbermaids, all that is all covered in the deposit, one set. You're, you're for, and, and then that way they, cause they only ever, it's only, only fair for them to have a deposit on one set because they only have one set at a time. When they come back the next week, you replace it with the new set and you clean out the old set. Now all that has to be built in. But that to me, and if you can train your customers to return that stuff clean for you and return compostables for you. See, now, how do I get my work done for free? I get people to pay me to do it. Okay? And the only, it's not that the only way to do that is run a workshop. A CSA is a great way to get people to, to do work for you and pay you to do work for you. So they bring you back everything clean. If you have a customer who brings back everything discussed, and I'm still, you still have to do things to sanitize it and keep everything safe, right? But also what you do is you number everybody's set, right? So if, if you're customer number four, I put 4A and 4B on your two sets. And you know your shit's coming back to you. Just like when we do a permaculture workshop, bring your own silverware, plate, cup, etc. And I know, I know you're going to wash it well, and if you don't, it's not my problem because it's, it's what you get to use. So we get that going on. Then if we provide them a container for compostables, just put it in your thing. And when I open it, the first thing I do is pull the compostables out and draw. Now you've sorted compostables for me. I might even have a place when you drop your stuff off for compostables to go, you can dump it there yourself and take your little compostable thing home. See, and, and so the mindset here, get the customer to do the work. If you Again, I've talked about doing CSAs where you have everybody show up at the same time. That way they can talk to each other. You don't have to talk to everybody. That way the, the, the customer that you have that doesn't know what to do with Basil, all of a sudden caring, caring Karen is explaining to, to, to the concerned Susan how to make pesto, and you don't have to. Get your customers to do the work for you. Bloggers, you have customers who do the work for you. They're the ones that, and, and social media. Those are your customers even if they're not direct customers that buy, but they're your followers who answer questions for you in your comment field. Oh, what he always does is this. And that doesn't mean you're, you're using them or taking advantage of them. If you have customers doing work for you, they love you or they wouldn't do it. So it's not about being someone that takes advantage of people. It's about being someone who brings so much value to a person that they wish to reciprocate. We call that a real free agorist market. With that, let's take another one. This one, cabin, off-grid. Uh, we want to use a generator, but eventually we want to use solar. How do we wire it? Sean Mills. Hey, everybody. This is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com. And I've got a question from Wayne. Wayne says, how should I wire my off-grid cabin for running on a generator now and adding in solar panels and battery bank later? I have a very small off-grid summer cabin where I'd like to take a phased approach to adding electricity. I want to wire the cabin this summer to be able to connect my existing portable gasoline generator when needed. I also want to add solar panels and a battery bank in future years. My generator is 3,250 watts. 
My electricity needs are very limited. A few lights, a few outlets for charging electronic devices, one or two ceiling fans on hot days. I have a propane powered fridge and I have a simple standalone solar setup for a 12 volt pump for water. So that's already covered. I'm thinking I would need, I would install a small eight or 12 circuit load center, which should be more uh, than enough to cover my near term needs and would leave room for future demands. Should I connect the generator to a transfer switch and then to the load center, which would allow me to connect a battery bank load in the future? Or should I start with an inverter charger, assuming that I will eventually need an inverter for the future battery bank? Any other considerations for a phased approach like this? The cabin is located in an off-grid island accessible only by boat. The island is too remote to hire an electrician to help me, but we do have several trustworthy neighbors who built their cabins by hand, have done all their own wiring, and are willing to help with advice and quote-unquote inspections. Thanks, Wayne. Well, Wayne, first of all, that sounds like a really awesome situation. Uh, you got a cabin on an island accessible only by boat, but you do still have neighbors, so that's great. Um, I think you're thinking about this the right way. Uh, this is actually very similar to our off-grid homestead where we phased in and solar panels were actually the very last thing that we put in place. Um, so let me tell you what we did. Uh, and we had some, we had bigger needs, uh, th than what you have here. Uh, so we have the house wired for code. So if we ever had grid power run up there, we would just take our safety switch out and put a meter where it is. So I think that's, um, I think that's a good idea in terms of have your load center, have all your the house wired the way you want it, and then how you feed that breaker box is up to you. Um, you can do a couple things here. So when we first started, our generator was wired directly to that safety switch, uh, which then went into the um, the breaker box for the house. And so we would, you know, we need power, we'd go crank the generator on, flip the switch, and then we could go into the house and do whatever we needed to do. Um, so like, for example, at that time, uh, we would run the generator to pull water out of the well. And then we'd also run that uh, while we were washing clothes. Then we'd, you know, do the other things we needed to do that needed power while the washing machine was running because the generator could handle way more than, than what the washing machine uh, needed. So that was step one. Step two is we added an inverter charger, like you mentioned, uh, that allowed us to basically put a piece in that was a long-term solution. It wasn't something that was just going in for a little while and then being replaced with something else. And you can wire your generator. As a matter of fact, we took the plug that had gone to the safety switch and just wired it to the inverter instead and wired the inverter into the safety switch. Um, and, and that is, those are the exact same wires that are there right now. And so, um, so I think that's the best way to move forward. If, if you want to have the switch and the generator wired straight to it, that would work. Uh, and then you could just wire the inverter to that and your inverter to the generator for phase two. Um, if you wanted to continue to phase this out, you could also, uh, use the generator with the inverter charger 
to charge a battery bank without even having a charge controller or solar panels, uh, which is what we did. So we had the inverter charger in place, and we, once we had enough money to go buy our battery bank, we put the battery bank in. And now instead of having to run the generator in order to wash clothes, we could run the generator while we were, for example, running the well pump and let it go for about an hour, let it top all the batteries up, and then for the rest of the day, uh, we could and, until the next day, we could run off of uh, the the battery bank. And so we did that for a while, and then later on, we went and got the charge controller and the solar panels, and then wired everything up. So now we're running off of solar during the day. We've still got the generator for larger loads or to top off the batteries, uh, or we could even uh, if we've got a lot of a uh, long string of sunny days, we can actually run our equalization charge on the batteries off of uh, the solar panels. But we always found it, it worked pretty well to just say, okay, every other week or sometimes once a month, we'll run the generator to run a full equalization charge to the battery banks, top, top all the batteries up with water, and now we're good to go. Um, and that's allowed us to run the same battery bank for eight years now. And I think I've mentioned on the podcast before <laughs> that battery bank has been road hard and put away wet and it's definitely in need of, of being replaced, but it still works. Uh, it doesn't work as long or, or for as high loads as we would like. Um, but you know, most of the time when we're there, we, we don't need electricity for what we're doing or the little bit we do need the battery bank is still fine for uh, and then when we need to run larger loads we still have the option to run the generator so i think you're absolutely thinking about this the right way in terms of walking step by step and, and phasing out this approach and i think that yeah the uh the generator straight into the uh to the switch and then into the um the load center um, and then you put the inverter in between the generator and the, the switch and then maybe add a battery bank and or battery bank and solar at the same time. That's the right step. So um, great idea. Sounds like you got a, a wonderful place there and good luck with it. Hey, guys, keep the uh, questions coming in. And I'll keep getting them answered. Thanks. So here's my deal on that, my addition. Um, I agree with everything Sean said, and Sean is the expert here, and so there's, there's just nothing for me to even begin to disagree with. From a standpoint of budget and mindset, though, there's not a lot of expense to do the part you want to do now, so if you're going to just do what you're going to do now and just do it, that's fine. But if you have the budget, I would go ahead and do the wiring and the battery bank in the wiring Right now. And I would do that over, let's say, a, a, a charge controller uh, as a component for the solar panels. Because we can use a basic Schumacher battery charger, charge the batteries, if that's what we really want to do for a time until we go ahead and install that charge controller and things like that. And, you know, you, I, I, I don't think you need a huge battery bank. Right, so we can wire everything together, put the battery bank in, have a generator, be able to charge the batteries. Because the reason I suggest you consider that right now is that you don't want to always have to have okay. And the size generator you're talking about, this is going to be It's not It's ba. Right. So if you can afford it, and you can always make a battery bank bigger. 
if you set up the place for the battery bank, the wiring for the battery bank, and you go with something like even you know some golf cart or some marine batteries, and it's just a small battery bank for now, you don't want to then go back later and add batteries to the battery bank. We understand that if we do this, those batteries are kind of like, they can go, maybe if they're still got some life in them, they can go somewhere else. But when we expand the battery bank, we want all new batteries, all from the same production run, all that stuff, so they don't rob from each other. But the wiring's done. So now we've got the breaker box, we've got the power, we've got everything. And when we add solar, all we're doing is bringing another way to get energy into the batteries in and everything else is done. And so... Given what you have and the way you're thinking, I'm thinking you probably have the budget to go ahead and do the batteries. If you don't, and it's going to stop you from doing the rest of everything, just do it. So I'm not saying don't. I'm not saying wait. I'm saying if you can afford to build the battery bank now, build the battery bank now because then you have generator and battery, and then solar is a cakewalk to add. So is wind, by the way. Just saying. With that, let's take. Uh, one more for the council and then one for me. Paul Wheaton on a Permies update. And one warning. Here it is. Warning. Warning, Will Robinson. Warning. Warning. Warning for those that are snowflakes and will melt if they hear a bad word they don't want to hear. Paul Wheaton, right at the beginning of his segment, uses a word uh, that rhymes with duck and starts with an F. He does that from time to time. I'm not going to cut it out. It's one use, and it, preceding it is the word dumb. <laughs> so it's a dumb duck with an F. All right? You listen to it, you cry, I don't pay attention to you. You can skip ahead about 60 seconds, and uh, I don't think you'll hear it, if that really has to be done. Paul, take it away. Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com with another update from Wheaton Labs. Uh, we have the Permaculture Boot Camp going well underway. We've got a bunch of people here, one, two, three, four, five, six at the table right now with me. I make seven. Yay! Um Welcome to the Permaculture Boot Camp. You guys, you are putting the cult into permaculture. Um, uh, we want to embrace cult because it's all over the internet that we got a cult here. I think it's kind of uh, not exactly a God-related cult, more like a gardening and natural building cult. Um, I, I think I want to... Keeping the word around uh, kind of keeps the dumb fucks away. You must be this smart to ride this ride. <laughs> it's like, well, I don't want to go there. It's a cold. <laughs> it's like, this worked out great for everybody. Okay, i uh, got two things I want to cover real quick. Uh, the first one is is rocket mass heaters. And so um, we've got somebody here who is part of our boot camp. And and uh, he has built two rocket mass heaters before arriving here, and he has experience with conventional wood stoves. Uh, and um, for, I don't know, more than a month, you kept the fires running nice and hot here in the Fisher-Price house with our fancy pants five-year-old rocket mass heater. How'd that go for you? It went really well. Uh, we started out in the mornings about 60 degrees, and then I'd fire it for about 35, 30 minutes, and it would bring it up to 75, 80 degrees. Uh, that would take between uh, a bundle and a half of sticks in the feed tube, that being the bundle, the size of the feed tube, uh, to two and a half bundles, and that would bring the, uh, the heat up in the house. A 1,300-square-foot house, is that what you said? Yeah. So that that's an awesome way to keep a house warm for 24 hours. After that, I fed no more wood. 
cooked my oatmeal on the top, 30, 40 minutes, my oatmeal was done, and I was done feeding the rocket stove. End of story, a warm house for 24 hours. Try that with a conventional wood heater. Now, I, I say a thing frequently, and I get a lot of people whose eyes glaze over and think I'm full of shit, uh, where I say uh, that a rocket mass heater will heat your home with one-tenth the wood. Um, and I kind of feel like it's unbelievable until you actually do it. So what is your opinion of what I'm saying? One-tenth the wood. What do you think? It seems pretty accurate to me, the amount of wood that you would normally, the number of logs compared to sticks, and notice I was using the word sticks uh, prior and not logs. The number of logs you'd have to feed to keep a 1,300 square foot house warm in the Montana mountains winters would be a lot more than a bundle and a half or two and a half bundles of sticks. A huge difference. I think the DOE is correct on that. Um, uh, with their numbers also are very close to what you just said. Okay. All right. Cool. Awesome. <clears throat> Next piece, the big piece, the show piece of today's little uh, sharing, because Jack has asked us to share what are our innovations that we've come up with. Um, uh, last year, we worked on Allerton Abbey. So it's a Wafati, um, uh, an above ground structure with a thick earthen roof. And we got it like super close to being finished but we got it we got it to that point late in the year like um november i think and so um it had already gotten cold so the mass inside is, wasn't charged it wasn't warmed up so the idea is is to uh to have a design such that the heat from the summer will heat the house through the winter but we didn't have that. But it's it's ready for the test this year. But however, last winter we were able to do some some testing of a sort. And so Jennifer and Josiah ran point on that. Mostly Jennifer. Uh, Jennifer kept uh, a bunch of logging thermometers and stuff like that. So you've got all that data yes. uh, out on a thread at Permies. Correct. All right. So what did you uh, do, and what did you find out? Right. So there were smaller versions of this same test to start with, but the, the sort of ultimate indicative test was bringing the Abbey air temperature up to 85 degrees um, 10 days in a row. And that was according to a thermometer that was like sitting on one of the mass walls. So that thermometer tended to read lower than the one that was sitting on, you know, exterior walls. But anyway, 85 degrees 10 days in a row. And then we lived in it normally for 10 days, and we found that the temperature hovered about between 10 and 15 degrees higher than it had before artificially charging the mass with the rocket cooktop, which is not what that thing is intended for and was difficult. It was very difficult because of the thermal inertia to get the temperature up to 85 degrees at all. It took days of burning wood. Uh, and I think the real brutal part was is that you didn't really have a heater to work with. No, no, it was it was just uh, we don't have a rocket mass heater in there because we're testing the Wofati concept. We just have a cooktop that's designed to move heat out, which it did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, uh, the rocket cooktop. We'll talk about that in another little yeah. blip to share with Jack. And uh, but the thing is, is that it's pretty much designed to take a few twigs and uh, heat some water or cook your food or or whatever. And um, <clears throat> instead of and, and then take the rest of the heat outside. Right. Correct. And and instead of doing that, uh, it's like let's have you cook 
the house. <laughs> yeah. So that wasn't ideal, but ultimately we were able to get it up and discover that um, with normal living, it hovered about, let's say, 12 degrees higher than it had been before that test. And then Josiah and I left for almost two weeks, um, and it did drop back down. It dropped to about 40 and stopped um, even before we came back. So it sort of, in my opinion, looking at the data, it found its own set point at around 40 degrees, which is lower than we would like, but is also not, you know, an infinite drop to right, the outdoor air temperature. degrees outside right. during that time, and so it was, it was still warmer than the outdoors. By quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So... <clears throat> But then when you were just when you were living in it, mm-hmm. you were probably holding it about I think fifty two based on what you were just saying. Yeah, that's pretty good. And and it's not like it was slowly dropping down to fifty two. It's like it held it at fifty two for ten days. Yes. It would as we cooked our food and slept in there and worked in there, it would just bob up and down along that fifty two degree line. Okay. All right. Yeah. So um I I want you to speculate. And this is you get you are now um, uh, a professional sure. in this space, sure. and so your your speculation has value. Um, <clears throat> we're going to use the we're going to we're going to use it the way it's designed to be used. So mm-hmm. heat the mass through the summer. Now uh, um, throughout the winter, how do you think it's going to do next winter? Um, I suspect that it'll be easy to keep it in the mid fifties. Um, and if we're in there a little bit more doing our cooking, um, and not running around so crazily, like it'll probably stay over 60. Yeah. I'm thinking over 62 and I think that two or three years later, it'll be like closer to 70. Um, but, but it's an annualized thermal inertia. It's going to take years to accumulate that heat. Right. All right. I think we're out of time, but uh, there you go, Jack, a little update from Wheaton Labs. Say bye. 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 So for my segment, um, a, a running theme that I've had since almost the beginning of this, you know, kind of overreaction to COVID, this this massive national lockdown, has been that as bad as it is, mostly what COVID is doing is killing the dying, and I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about industries and stores and segments and niches, etc. That when you have a windstorm in spring. And it's not, you know, it's not a tornadic storm. It's not something with like 100 mile an hour straight lines. It's just a really good windy storm. Like we had last night. Like we had wind come in last night, uh, gusts over 50 miles an hour. Mostly during the spring in Texas, we call days with 50 miles an hour or higher winds Tuesday. Right? I mean, it's just, it happens all the time. Uh, right now, not this second, but this morning, I think the gusts outside were up to about 30, 35 miles an hour. It's nice out. It's just, it's windy here. So that type of windstorm comes through and you go out and your peach tree and you look at the ground and there's like 30% of the peaches are laying on the ground long before they were ever going to be ripe. And you say, the windstorm killed my peaches. No, no. A young peach, not even close to being ripe, can survive those winds. That's why the other 80% or 70% of those peaches are still on the tree. Those were all the ones that didn't get a good set. They were rotting. They were dying. They were already invaded with fruit flies. They were the dying fruit that probably was going to kill some of your other fruit. And they were cleansed from the tree by the wind. Viruses, as bad as they are, are cleansers. It's one of the things they do. They wipe things out that are weak. And it's 
really hard for us to accept that when it's our fellow human beings. But it's really easy for us to accept that if we have a flock of ducks and some virus comes through and kills 2% of our duck flock. We know that the 98% that remains are the stronger, better ducks. Now, we value human life more than we value the life of a duck, so we try to save the 2% with humans, but it doesn't change the calculus. And I know that sounds heartless, and it's not. It's an acceptance of natural systems. And it is, it is an acknowledgement that as much as we try to be using our intellect and our compassion, we're not immune to natural systems. But natural systems don't just affect biological life. They affect industries. They affect niches. They affect lots of things. And in this case, COVID is killing... When I say COVID is killing the dying, I'm not talking about a 99-year-old with advanced stage lung cancer who was going to be dead next month no matter what, but died this month and they called it a COVID death. I'm not talking about that. And again, before anybody gets all upset with me, I've said before, if that is your loved one, I feel for you. And the fact that those final weeks or final months were taken from you, I, I cannot even begin to tell you how much sympathy I have. But it still is what it is. And, it, and, and, and COVID is hitting industries the same way. No one gets mad, and like I said, unless you work for Macy's, when I say Macy's furloughed almost all the retail workers and over half of them are never getting their jobs back. Because Macy's, all those stores were going to go out of business anyway by, I would say, January to February of next year. That COVID hastened that. The final nail in a coffin that already had dirt on it. Okay? Body was in the coffin. Dirt, body was embalmed. Dirt was being, you know, when sometimes when you have a ceremony and everybody drops a little handful of dirt, the, the shovel's not going yet. But right before... The shovel went, somebody got in the hole and popped a couple more nails and just keep the coffin secure. That's Macy's. And that's happening to hundreds, if not thousands, of businesses and niches right now. And public education is not immune. So let me read this article to you. And this is about Governor Andrew Como's concepts about education. Uh, this is on, who is it, on Syracuse.com local uh, media outlet in New York, upstate New York, says, is going to school in person obsolete? Como wonders why old model persists. Uh, New York, Governor Andrew Como suggests today that remote learning could become a permanent part of life for New York students even after coronavirus pandemic ends. Quote, the old model of everybody goes and sits in a classroom and the teacher's in front of that classroom and teaches that class, and you do all that across the city, all across the state, all these buildings, all these physical classrooms, end quote, Como said during a press briefing in New York City. Quote, why? With all the technology you have, end quote. Como didn't say buildings won't reopen at all, but the state is exploring the possibility that schools will use distance learning in bigger ways in the future, he said. He acknowledged that New York is still at this uh, and learning as it goes along. Teachers need training. Some students still need devices. Como first closed schools in March to slow the spread of virus. Students have been, competing le been completing lessons and assignments from home since then. Reopening schools will be a massive undertaking requiring new policies and procedures, Como has said. He also has said he wants to use the opportunity to improve schools. Pandemic will spark a willingness to change and adapt, Como added. After all this, he said people will re realize how vulnerable we are and understand the need for a new approach to education. Quote, it's hard to change the status quo, end quote, he said. 
quote, but you get moments in history where people say, okay, I'm ready, I'm ready to change, I get it, I think this is one of those moments. The state will also examine how schools can use technology to provide more opportunities to students no matter where they are, how technology can provide shared education amongst schools and colleges, how technology can reduce educational inequality, including for students learning English as a new language, how schools can use technology to meet the needs of students with disabilities, how the state can provide teachers more tools to use technology, how technology can provide greater access to high-quality education no matter where students live, how schools can use classroom technology to recreate larger class or lecture hall environments given ongoing social distancing rules. The state is partnering with Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to design a blueprint for post-pandemic education in New York, Como said. Schools in the state will stay closed through the end of the current academic year. I want to say something about Bill Gates. I do not trust Bill Gates uh, at all. I would, I would sooner trust my daughter, my granddaughter, to the Casey Anthony Babysitting Academy than I would trust Bill Gates. It doesn't matter here. Because Bill Gates is deeply involved with this school that your kid's going to anyway. And if your child is at home learning from the state system, you have more, not less control, and they have less control of your child. So even if everything stays par here, you still get the kid out of the institution. And you still have greater influence over the child if you choose to exercise it. So... The, the right has lost their mind. Bill Gates is going to control my child's education. If your kid is in public school, Bill Gates controls your kid's education now, you big dumbass. Okay? Just to be completely clear about that, you are delusional if you think moving children to home-based education gives Bill Gates more access to your children. I think what Como's talking about here, and again, this is not a defense of Bill Gates, who I trust about as much as Tijuana tap water, is technology. How do you implement this technology? Let's talk about some of the so like, there's some, there's some things we got to figure out how to do this. One, teachers need training. If a teacher needs training more than a week to be able to teach children at home, they should have already lost their job because that's what they're supposed to be doing right now. Teaching children at home Using distance learning tools means that you know how to sit in front of a camera and do the same shit you do in a classroom. And screen sharing means that you can take Johnny and you can go through his work with him just like you do in a classroom, which most of you don't do anyway. Instead, you yell at Johnny while he sits in front of a chalkboard not under or a, a whiteboard, I guess now, not understanding the stupid Common Core math that you guys are teaching. So, bullshit. Some children don't have devices. Shut up. Shut up, shut up, shut up. You need to be slapped with a frozen rainbow trout for your stupidity for even bringing that up. We're acting like children go to school for free. A child in a seat in a school represents tens of thousands of dollars a year in taxpayer money. That child is a customer, not treated like a customer, because that's, in the words of Andrew Como, which I'll give you in a little bit, a public monopoly. But they are a customer. And there is a cost for that desk. There's a cost for the room around them. There's a cost to air, air condition and heat that room. There's a cost to maintain that building. You could literally buy every child that goes to school, not just the ones that needed a device, and it would still cost less than running a school for those kids to go to. That is stupidity. That is ignorance. That is economic illiteracy. That is not an objection. That is pointless. A, a, a device today costs less than most textbooks did in 1995. Shut up. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut the hell up, you moron. Sorry, 
Sorry, I'll go on. Okay, so that's not a problem. So the, the two big objections, we need to train teachers. Then you need to fire the ones that can't figure out how to work freaking share space. Okay, because you're not qualified to teach fifth grade if you can't do that. Because kids have no problem doing it. Right? Basically, you're saying you can't FaceTime if, you, if you're saying you can't do this. And the whole device thing, then whoever is saying that is so economically illiterate, whatever position they have being responsible for money needs to go away. They don't need that job anymore. They need to go do something else. Like, I don't know, scrape the gum out from under the desk that you're going to sell because you don't need them anymore at the school, and I don't know who the hell's going to buy them. And then when they're done with that, they don't have a job anymore because they're useless. Now, the other people who went nuts when this man said this wasn't just the extreme right because Bill Gates, oh my God, he's going to be under the bed with George Soros killing my children because my children are going to be home instead of in the state-run institution. Really think about that. Okay? Really think about that. The left. The left is losing their mind because the building, the institution that controls the children is the way that they get their agenda into the mind of the child. And I'm going to explain to you how no matter what they do, if your children are home and you actually see what they're doing, that you can steer that and prevent it. So my grandson had a project today. Guess what his project was? He was supposed to write a letter to someone that he knew, and if he didn't know somebody, he was supposed to invent somebody, who lived in the Blackland Prairie, which is basically where we live. We're kind of on the edge of it, but down to San Antonio, up, it's a big chunk of Texas. And the Blackland Prairie is in trouble, ecologically. So it was all angled toward climate change bullshit, of course. But I'm like, what I want you to do before we write this letter, I want you to go to Google, and I want you to find out what the problems are. Because he started out with, like, pick up your trash. I'm like, but that's that's not what they're trying to get you to do. They're trying to get you to understand the ecosystem. They're trying to get you to understand the, the specific, like, picking up your trash works everywhere. So that's a good thing, and we could include it, and you are only nine, so that's a good place to start. But you need to find out what the problems are that the Blackland Prairie has. Number one problem, the buffalo were eliminated. And the other problem is cows are overgrazing. We start to come back into cows cause climate change. Hold on a second. Let's talk about what a buffalo is. I had this actual conversation with my grandson today. What is a buffalo? So we talked about it. So is a buffalo basically a big wild cow? Well, yeah. What do buffaloes eat? Grass. What do cows eat? Grass. So how is it bad for cows to eat the grass, but it's not bad for buffaloes to eat the grass? Well, there's more cows. Well, let's research that. How many buffalo were there? Between 50 and 100 million buffalo. How many cows are there? About the same number. Wait a minute. How's this possible? So guess who got a lesson in rotational grazing today? Not just me. My grandson's teacher is getting her ass a lesson in rotational grazing. She's also getting a lesson in earthworks, ponds, water retention, and erosion prevention. So you presented the problem, which is totally valid. I've given you real solutions through the mind of a nine-year-old who now can walk through my swales and explain them, how they work, and say Papa Jack would have built a pond there if he could. He can't because of bedrock. How many nine-year-olds even know what the hell bedrock is? But if he could, that pond would then do further water retention. My grandson could explain earthworks and rotational grazing at nine from the assignment the public education system gave him. So, instead of fighting forces, use them. Use them. 
So now you're going to get, and I did not write it. I, when he presented the letter to me, I was like, well, I would change this. And I'm, just stop it, Jack. That's not your job. He's nine, and he's a sound like a nine-year-old wrote it. But boy, I understand what this says. And if his teacher doesn't, guess what she can do? She can look it up. And as long as that grade comes back good, we're good on that. That grade comes back bad, I'm going to want to know from that teacher, why is the grade bad? He missed commas and stuff. Oh, you were judging that? Okay, fine. But you don't think that's that's not what you were looking for? Well, can you show me, please, where that's wrong? Can you show me where rotational grazing is not a solution to this? Like taking the cows away won't fix it. Because then what manages the grassland? What manages the prairie in the absence of the buffalo? We even talked, my, son, my grandson and I talked today, well, why don't we bring the buffalo back? He thought that was a great idea. So I started, well, do you know how buffalo work? Well, they eat grass. I said, yeah, they eat grass. But why do they all stay in this clump? We'd already talked about it. It's just because the wolves try to eat them. So then we have to bring the wolves back. Are we going to bring the wolves back from Texas all the way to Canada? He didn't think that was such a good idea. I said, and then do you understand, like, the buffalo travel? Like, think about where all the roads are and everything. So if we have 50 million buffalo traveling thousands of miles north and south every year, could that be a problem? He's like, oh, the cars will hit them. And I'm like... And you see what happens to a car when a deer hits it, right? And he's like, yeah, I'm imagining a buffalo, how much bigger they are. And you see his face, like, oh. So we're not, and we're not going to do it. So we're not bringing the buffalo back. So something has to eat the grass. So since we don't have wolves to make the cows all stay together, how do we do that? And I explained how to use electro tape. And I'm awake, and he gets it, right? He may not be able to do it, but he understands it. I'm waiting for this teacher to ask him to explain it and get her ass a learning. <laughs> From a nine-year-old on earthworks and rotational grazing. So when you tell me you want to send the kid home to learn, but Bill Gates is going to be in charge of it, as long as I get to... I See, I already have more control. I already have the ability to use the force instead of resist the force. See how simple that is? You notice, like, just made me realize when I said that, the whole concept of Star Wars and the Jedi, neither the Sith nor the Jedi fight the force both use the force and the same force is usable for good or for evil so anything that moves the child closer to the parent in the educational process to me gives the parent more control many parents won't use it well they're not using it now but if you and I'm going to tell you the whole thing coming back to COVID killing the dying I'll tell you what Andrew Cuomo is looking at see my state's going to go bankrupt No matter how much money I get out of this COVID thing for bailouts, my state's headed for bankruptcy. One of my biggest expenses is the school system. No matter how much I tax people on property, I can't afford it. When you look at it fiscally, the numbers do not work. I have all these buildings with all these kids sitting in them all doing the same thing. And the teachers' unions are flipping out. Do you know why? Does this mean we won't have teachers? No, it doesn't mean we won't have teachers. What it means is... We're going to have a lot less teachers. This idea that we're still going to have class sizes be the same and all. This is like saying, we'll say, we have all this, these, this giant farm of fields. They need to be plowed every year. And I hire all these people to use old-style plows with a horse. Okay? And they're all plowing the fields. And all of a sudden, the Fordson tractor comes. And I can get a much bigger plow, and I can pull it with a tractor. And one guy can do the work of 20 guys in half a day versus a full day. So it's really 40-man days. But I'm going to get all of my plowmen a tractor and have them all work and keep their jobs. When I 
implement that automation technology of the tractor and the plow. I'm not keeping all my plowmen. That's why the unions are not designed to protect the best teachers. They're there to, the unions in general do not protect the best workers. The best workers don't need protection. The best workers are most valued by their employers in all walks of life. The unions exist to protect the worst to the mediocre. And in a school environment, in a government environment, we treat everybody equally and we pay everybody the same based on things like tenure, time, and a little bit on grade and, and subject matter. But basically, everybody, two teachers can be paid the exact same money and one can be useless and one can be so phenomenal they really belong teaching PhD-level university courses, but they're teaching kids because they love them and they get paid the same. So you get mediocre pay and the union exists to protect all the mediocre people. That's why it exists. So when you see this coming, what you see is not only a complete radical change in education, but a massive reduction in headcount. And when you reduce teacher headcount, you can reduce administrator headcount. And boy, you want to talk about clearing the useless, there we go, baby. So the union and the teachers and the Democrats are freaking out here because this was coming anyway, and the windstorm is starting to knock the rotting fruit off the tree. And none of the things they say are a problem are actually a problem. Because somehow, we're dealing with it right now, and gee, not everybody is staying at home. Somehow, right now, children are learning from home. Parents are seeing it can be done, and how many parents are having experiences like I had this morning, where they like the fact that I'm now influencing the education of my grandson, and guess what? He's still doing the work the way they asked him to. It's a dying, dead already system. It's outdated. It's been the same for 150 years. 150 years ago, you couldn't even plug in a light bulb. Today, you have more computing power in your phone than 10 of the computer banks combined that put a man on the moon in 1969. We do not need to be doing things the same way. I agree with Andrew Como. I don't know why we still are, except I have an answer to that. But we'll save it for another day. Just real quick, I wanted to read something to you uh, from Como that should make this less of a surprise to people. Again, this is not championing Como. I, I also don't trust Andrew Como. But I do trust people to be who they really are and to show you who they really are um, consistently. For, for that to be something that we, we if you listen to them when they're not on the teleprompter and they slip... They tell you who they are. Well, this is an article. You can read the whole thing if you want to. It is from October 30th, 2014. Albany. Governor Andrew Como is being criticized for calling education a public monopoly and vowing a second term to overhaul the system. He said he would push for reforms to the teacher evaluation system and seek more charter schools. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. I see this as an opportunity. He thinks schools are too expensive, and he thinks the way that we're doing them is outdated. And, of course, his agenda for what he wants to put into children's minds is different than mine. But the method by which the information is taught, I think we mostly agree with. And, again, it is just something that I've said for years is coming, and I, I don't see any way out of it now. COVID didn't cause it. COVID is accelerating the death of the dying. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, please consider supporting us in an easy way. 
simple way. Do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. I also have all the items I've ever reviewed there available to you. Uh, and today I've got a great one. And I've got a great one because it's stupid cheap today. This is made by King Cooker. I've, I've brought this around a lot. It's a 12-slot leg and wing grill rack. What this thing does is it lets you cook wings or chicken legs hanging so that the air around them roasts the skin and cooks them. You can do this on a grill, and you can do this in an oven. I give you all the instructions to do it with. Now, why did I bring it around today? Because a lot of times what I do is I go through some of my, my more popular items, and this is one of them, and say, is there a deal on them? Yeah, there's a deal on it. How about eight bucks? It's 47% off, $8. If you're waiting for this thing to go down further, I just don't think it is. Um, this is just one of the best things in my kitchen. It belongs in your kitchen, and it belongs in your life. It is also, it's a unitasker. I generally don't like unitaskers. It's not really a unitasker because it does legs and wings, so it's, but it cooks chicken this way. And I actually like to do legs more than wings with it. I think what it does to chicken legs is amazing. And cooking 12 chicken legs in that footprint is awesome. I give you a bunch of recipes in the write-up today. Um, but this is a unitasker that's worth having. And at 8 bucks, it's worth having two. It really is. Get Because you, basically you get two for the price of one. And if you have a grill, you want two. If you have a big enough grill to put two of them on it and then use your side burners on each side of it, put them in the middle, you want two. If you have a little grill or you're only going to use an oven, you want one. Because you won't be able to fit. I can't fit two in my oven. If I could, I would. <laughs> I'm telling you. I even tell you how to cook in the oven without getting like flare-ups and smoking grease and everything. Everything's in the write-up. Check it out. You can find it at the survivalpodcast.com. Scroll down below today's episode, and you'll see King Cooker 12-slot leg and green grill rack. You can always find everything I've ever reviewed alphabetically categorized at tspaz.com. And if you were on the Daily Mail... You'd get an email today, and there'd be a link where you wouldn't have to remember, and you could go check this thing out and get it for eight bucks. To do that, go to the, you have to do it once. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on subscribe, fill out the form, name and email address. That's all you got to do, and you get an email every day. If you ever decide you hate my emails, click on subscribe. Don't send me. Any, I get an email every once in a while. You asshole! I don't want any more of these emails. Did you see the unsubscribe link at the bottom? Oh, sigh. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, completely wrap things up with our song of the day today. Song of the day today is uh, a song for Mother's Day. And so Mother's Day is coming, and uh, this is by Martina McBride. I don't particularly enjoy listening to this song on a daily basis. Like, if I'm listening like to a Pandora country station with kind of this era of music in it, and it comes on, I might leave it on, I might jump ahead. But it's a great song. It's just, it's not what I'm going to drink a beer and work on my deck to, okay? Um, it's in my daughter's eyes. Now, that said, I have a special place in my heart for Martina McBride. I really do. I think she's one of the most talented musicians in modern music, vocally. Martina McBride is the person... You can take away the synthesizers, the correction, all the electronics, and she's still amazing. You can take away all the electronic instruments, and she's still amazing. You can take away the music. And she. And if you listen to what I play every year at Christmas time, her rendition of a cappella of Oh Holy Night, it will put a chill up your spine if you have a soul. This woman is incredibly vocally talented 
And this song showcases those amazing vocals. If there's a human that can sing like an angel, it's this woman. She is amazing to me, without it being like operatic. And I'm sure she could do that if she wanted to. Um, the song itself, though, what I what I love about it is, it's kind of two me messages. One, the message is, the people that really love you and see you is the is the most amazing thing in the world. Try to be the person they see you as. You know, and, and I'll, I'll put the old thing about a dog in there. Try to be the person your dog thinks you are, right? But definitely what your kids, or in my case, like my grandkids think I am. I want to be that man as best I can. The other side of it, though, is realizing that as a parent, you, you don't save your kids. They really save you. They make you a better person. In this case, a better mom. But, you know, Father's Day is coming as well. Um, and I think parents it just generally feel that way. But it's just a pretty song from Mom's Day. And if you're a mom... This one goes out to you. With that, it's been Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast. In my daughter's eyes, I am a hero. I am strong and wise, and I know no fear. But the truth is plain to see. She was sent to rescue me I see who I want to be In my daughter's eyes In my daughter's eyes Everyone is equal Darkness turns to light And the world is at peace This miracle God gave to me Gives me strength when I'm weak I find reason to believe In my daughter's eyes And when she wraps her hand around my finger Heart puts a smile in my heart Everything becomes Happy she made me